Hi, Vox Tablet listeners. This is Julie Subrin. I have a quick word of explanation before we start the podcast. Last week, we mentioned that our host, Sarah Ivory, is now out on maternity leave. However, we have one last interview that she recorded in the pre-baby era, and that's what you'll be hearing today. So here it is. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, what soccer can tell us about World War II. Throughout the Second World War, life in the Netherlands continued pretty much as usual. You went to school, to your job, to watch and play soccer. That is, unless you were a Jew. If you were Jewish, well, the story was quite different. It's through the country's soccer culture that author Simon Cooper looks at the war and offers fresh insight into the treatment of Dutch Jews. His book, Ajax, the Dutch, the War, has just come out in the United States. Cooper is a weekly columnist for the Financial Times, and he's written three books about soccer besides this one. He's joining us now from Paris to talk about this book. Simon Cooper, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you very much. Why use soccer as a lens through which to view the world? I mean, I should partly explain why I was living in Holland and began to write this book. I grew up there because my father had a job there for most of my childhood from the age of six to 16. And I went to a Dutch school, uh, learned Dutch, and grew up in the 70s and 80s with this myth that Holland had been good in the war, that everyone had been in the resistance, that when people weren't, you know, hiding their Jews, they were, um, you know, delivering secret newspapers or sending Germans the wrong way to the railway station. And of course, as I grew older and the Dutch story changed as the wartime generation began to die off, I realized I'd swallowed a myth. And so I wanted to look again at what the what the Dutch war had actually been like. And like, like most males in Holland, I had grown up soccer mad, playing soccer in a club. And the Netherlands is a particularly soccer playing country. I mean, um, all boys in my generation joined a club and played and whole families would live in the soccer club. You know, um, the women would serve uh, beers behind the bar. It was all, I suppose, quite sexist in its arrangement. (laughs) And uh, parents would watch on the touchline and uh, little babies would hang around the clubhouse. So a huge part of the population lives its life in soccer clubs. So I felt, you know, based on my Dutch experience, that the way to understand ordinary lives of the average person, of the average non-Jewish, non-resistance Dutch person in the war. The way to understand ordinary lives was through soccer. And so what I was trying to do in the book was to use soccer as a way to see how people had actually lived the war away from the myths and the stories of heroism and the idea that we all were raised with that the European war was a sort of succession of tragedies and heroic moments. For most people, it wasn't, I came to discover. It was much more mundane than that. And when exactly was it that you were growing up uh, in Holland? In what what decades? Well, we arrived in 1976, and we lived in a town called Leiden, which was also um, where Rembrandt grew up, not to compare myself to him, and the Pilgrim (laughs) Fathers lived before they came to the US. And being Jewish, I couldn't help but, you know, but notice there weren't many Jews left, although there was quite a large synagogue. And I, you know, there was this huge hole that had been left by the murder of the Jews. No country in Western Europe lost a larger proportion of its Jews than Holland. 80% of Dutch Jews or so uh, died in the war. And so I grew up in this kind of emptiness, as it were. I mean, 
in a, in a very staid, rather eventless country where nothing much had happened since the 17th century, other than World War Two. This was the great event that, that overshadowed, that hung over everything else. The book focuses on Ajax, the Amsterdam soccer club. For those of us who know little about this club, can you give us some background about it? Well, Ajax was really in the, when the war broke out. It was just one of three or four big clubs in Amsterdam. And it was amateur. You know, the players were not paid like, like all Dutch sports at that time. And it wasn't a Jewish club, but it was right near the Jewish quarter. It was about a mile away and people would get on the trams, the Jews would get on the trams from the Jewish quarter on Sunday after lunch and uh, go to the Ajax Stadium where they would merge into the Sea of Gentiles. So the Ajax Stadium was one of many places, I guess, where Jews and Gentiles mixed in quite an easy way in Amsterdam before the war. And then the war came and the Jews were murdered. And after the war, Ajax gradually turned into what became the world's best soccer club. I mean, there was an extraordinary group of local boys who came together there in the 60s, most famously of all the great Dutch, the father of Dutch football, Johan Cruyff, who later played in the US also with the Washington Diplomats and the LA Aztecs, but who uh, led Holland to the World Cup final in 1974. So there was this extraordinary generation of talent and brilliance. They invented what's known as total football. And a lot of the funding came from an interesting group of local business people, two of whom had been collaborators with the Germans in World War II, the, the Van der Maiden brothers in Holland in the 60s were known as the Bunker Builders because they had built bunkers for the Germans along the North Sea. Mm. And the other funders of Ajax who cohabited quite happily with the Van der Maiden brothers were, were mostly Jews who survived the war and um, had, uh, had become successful businessmen but were still totally traumatized by having lost their families. And so they were crucial to Ajax becoming in the 70s the best soccer club in the world. And Ajax, in the eyes of fans of other Dutch teams, was came to be seen as the Jewish club, partly because, you know, there were some Jews around and there were some Jewish chairmen of Ajax at different times, and partly because Amsterdam was known historically in the Netherlands as the Jewish city. And so from the 70s and the 80s, you started to get anti-Semitic abuse and chanting against Ajax by hardcore fans of other clubs, which to some degree continues to this day. Now, you mentioned that growing up uh, in Leiden, there was this idea that that the Netherlands had been very good to the Jews, but in fact, that isn't quite the case. Can you parse that out a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, the, the story I grew up with, which was the story of the Dutch war that was told for a very long time, was goed and fout. So some Dutch people had been goed or good, which mean that they'd been, they, they were in the resistance, and really that was an enormous number of people and they were representative of the whole population. And then on the other hand, you had a few people who'd been fout or wrong and they had collaborated and they'd been punished and nobody spoke to them anymore. And there's a very good historian uh, called Hans Blom who in the 80s was the first to say, actually, this is a false depiction of the Dutch war. That what really happened was, yes, there were very few people who were Hutu in the resistance and very few people who were fouts. Most Dutch people were neither. They were trying to muddle through, make the best of a bad situation, get through the war with as little damage as possible to themselves and their families. And so the story of the murder of the Dutch Jews isn't that lots of Dutch people hated Jews and wanted to kill them. That's not the way, the way it happened at all. The story of the Dutch Holocaust is the Germans came in and said, we, we want to kill your Jews. And very largely, the Dutch population said, 
okay, we'll do nothing to stop you. Now, there was very little anti-Semitic impulse in, in Holland, and you can see that through Dutch history there were not populist parties that agitated, political parties that agitated against Jews. There was uh, no tradition of anti-Semitic demagogues, that kind of thing. There were no pogroms. Jews had lived pretty happily in Holland from the 16th century onwards. So what writing this book helped me understand is that to understand the Holocaust in moral terms doesn't really explain very much. The Holocaust was obviously planned and decided by bad people, but it was implemented largely by the policemen and railway workers of the Netherlands, say, by bureaucrats in the city council, by people who really didn't have an impetus against Jews, didn't really want to kill Jews, but once given the order were too cowardly and careful to resist it, and moreover, everyone else was obeying anyway. So that, to me, was was an interesting, uh, a surprising understanding that I arrived at about the Holocaust in Holland, and perhaps the lesson applies elsewhere too. It's about obedience rather than about evil. I mean, that's also the conclusion Hannah Arendt draws about Eichmann at his trial. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, in the book, you contrast the treatment of the Jews by the Dutch to the treatment of the Jews by the Danes. Uh, I wonder if you can briefly describe the difference in uh, how it all played out. Well, in the Netherlands, very largely, the Germans said, give us your Jews, and the Dutch did, they obeyed. And in Denmark, for a start, the, the order came later from the Germans. It was 1943, and by then the Danes and everybody else could see Germany was going to lose the war and there was more disobedience. But very strikingly, in Denmark, the resistance to a Holocaust came from the top of Danish society. Uh, the Danes had collaborated very cheerfully with the Germans for a large part since the Germans had invaded them in 1940. The Germans even let the Danes have their own government. The Danish king remained in place. And they had worked quite well together with the Germans, but when the Germans said in 1943, OK, we're going to kill the Jews, the Danes from the king down said, no, this is not going to happen. And the Danish Lutheran Church, and pretty much everyone in Denmark was a Lutheran, and so the Lutheran Church was virtually the sort of moral arm of the government. Uh, most leading churchmen said, no, we're not going to do this. And there was very widespread organization of the amazing operation of shipping Denmark's Jews across the Sound to Sweden on little boats. And, you know, half of Copenhagen must have known of the plan. I mean, huge numbers of Jews checked into hospital under Gentile names, uh, one uh, hospital worker identified all the Jewish names he could find in the telephone directory and called all these people one by one when he found that he found out the times of the German raids. Wow. The German uh, raids plans were leaked to the Danes. So this was really cross society. It was an astonishing thing. And it's not that Danes were better people than Dutch people. It was that the circumstances were different. I mean, in Holland, there wasn't this haven just a few miles across the sea. And that there was a lead given from the top, which there wasn't in Holland. I mean, in Holland, the government had fled to London. The Queen was in London. There wasn't the same leadership from above. And one thing became very clear to me about the German occupation of Western Europe is the Germans relied a lot on the acquiescence of the population. This was not a brutal occupation, the way the occupation of Eastern Europe was brutal, where the Germans just killed people. In the West, there was very light policing most Dutch people in small towns barely saw a German throughout the war. So it, the Germans couldn't have done the Holocaust in Holland if the Dutch hadn't helped them. If the Dutch had made it difficult, the Germans weren't about to go and mow down large parts of the population mm -hmm. because they needed their troops in the east. They wanted to govern as easily as possible in the west. 
And so only in about 1944 does the German occupation become scary and brutal for most people. Of course, for Jews, it had been scary and brutal from the start. For most Dutch people, it was a very different story. And that's where the soccer comes in. They kept playing soccer. Their routines, their lives had not changed so much. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a little bit about the book, some of the specifics. You write in the uh, book about Eddie Hamill, a Jew from New York who played for Ajax from 1922 to 1930. What happened to him? Yeah, Hamill seems to have been born in New York, Dutch Jewish family, and went back to Amsterdam and was a good, respected soccer player for Ajax in the 20s. And when war came, he was desperate to prove that he was an American. But like a lot of people in those days, he hadn't really bothered with passports and he didn't possess a U.S. passport, which would have saved him and his family. So the Germans captured him. They took him to the holding camp in the Netherlands. And then when he still couldn't prove he was American, they sent him to Auschwitz. Now, I met a a British Jew who had been in a very similar situation to Hamel. He, He... had lived in Holland. He was part Dutch. He had given away his British passport for safekeeping. He couldn't get it back. So he too was sent to Auschwitz with Hamel. I mean, both their their families were killed on arrival in Auschwitz. Hamel and uh, Greenman, who I met, the British Jew, survived for some time uh, until one day there was a selection, as they call it, and Hamel was selected for the gas chambers and was killed. And Greenman, who had been his friend in Auschwitz, told me the story in about 2000 when Greenman was a man in his 90s. And he said it was important for him. He was the only, Greenman believed he was the only person on the transport from the Dutch transit camp to Auschwitz who was still alive. And it was important for him to tell the stories of these other people, particularly Hamel. Nobody had ever asked him about Hamel until I came along. It was in 1941, on September 15th, that in fact the Germans banned Jews in the Netherlands from playing sport in public. How did the soccer clubs at that time handle this uh, ban? Well, almost all of them just totally acquiesced. Um, I mean, there were a few exceptions. There was one Catholic club in some village where the the club's pastor said, the club's priest said, um, I don't care who has ordered this sign to be put up, whether it's the Germans or the local administration, I don't care, that sign is not going up. And there's a couple of heroic stories like that, but very largely they all implemented the ban. And one of the, one of my best finds while writing the book was I found the whole archive of this quite big Dutch soccer club which is still going called Sparta Rotterdam which had a lot of Jewish members a lot of the uh, middle class Jews of, of, of Rotterdam were members of the club and Sparta gets the order that Jews are henceforth banned and it doesn't want to take any risk so it immediately implements the order and it writes very polite letters to the Jewish members saying we are sorry henceforth under regulation XYZ you are no longer allowed to play sport. And mostly the Jews write back these very polite formal letters saying, uh, thank you for your letter of September 15th. Um, I hereby return my certificate. And Sparta, very, in a very gentlemanly way, uh, refunded the subscriptions that these members had paid because it was the beginning of the soccer season and it was felt to be unfair that these people had paid for their membership when they were no, not going to get the benefits of it. So they were repaid their membership and then of course uh, almost all of them were killed. Can you tell us a little bit more about Sparta Rotterdam and their large sign? Yeah so Sparta implements the ban on Jews and it hangs up and the club's administrator hangs up this sign saying forbidden for Jews above the entrance to the club 
And this is the one debate that I found at Sparta about the ban on Jews. Um, a half-Jewish member of the club's board says, I was very affronted by this huge sign that we've hung up. And the administrator told, shouted at a couple of Jewish members that they couldn't come in, and it was all very rude and uncouth. And then they have this board meeting where they debate it, and they say, couldn't we have hung up a smaller board that said forbidden for Jews, but that wasn't quite so big? And couldn't the administrator have been a bit more polite in rejecting the Jewish members from entering the club? And that, I thought, was a very telling discussion that sums up a lot of the Dutch war. That The question that the Dutch asked was, how big must the sign be forbidden for Jews? Instead of the, the sort of Danish question, which is, should we be doing this at all? You mentioned earlier in our conversation that in the early 80s, Ajax fans began to self-identify as Jews, to call themselves Jews. How do we understand that uh, trend? Yeah, I mean, everything in Holland happens late. So the German poet Heinrich Heine once wrote, or is said to have written, when the world comes to the, an end, I want to go to Holland, because in Holland, everything happens 20 years later. <laughs> and so hooliganism arrived from England about 20 years later. And in the early 80s, you started to get soccer hooligans, uh, bad boys. And so fans of other clubs like The Hague and Feyenoord and Utrecht, the, these these early sides of hardcore fans, used to deride Ajax as Jewish and a Jewish club. And so quite soon the Ajax fans said, OK, you call us Jewish, well, then we're going to be Jewish. And so to this day, in a very strange sight, Ajax hardcore fans, who are almost to a man Gentiles, wave the Star of David flags and they shout, we are Jews, super Jews, very strange. Wow. And, um, of course, they're not Jews, the people singing this, and, and the people in the Ajax Stadium who are Jewish mostly cringe at the sight. They find it very uh, embarrassing. But Ajax, the hardcore, has identified as Jews uh, for 30 years now as a response to anti-Semitic baiting from other fans. And, in fact, it's so powerful is this identification that, the Star of David is now known in Amsterdam sometimes as an Ajax star. Wow. So uh, I heard of a girl who went into a jeweler's and said, do you have an Ajax star for me? So, and a rabbi, I also heard of a rabbi walking through Rotterdam, which is the you know, place where they don't like Ajax, walking through Rotterdam in, you know, in his traditional ghetto, with black hat, long curls, and people will shout Ajax at him. Wow. So the, the identification between Jews and Ajax although it's not really based on history, is now is now very strong in Holland. The anti-Ajax Jewish slurring, is that anti-Semitic then, or is it just the sort of uh, terminology of Jewishness or the iconography of it, a Star of David, for instance, but it doesn't actually have any religious significance or any prejudicial significance? I mean, it is... When Feyenoord fans shout, you know, hiss to make the sound of escaping gas or they shout anti-Semitic abuse at Ajax. They're doing it because they don't like Ajax, and they're using Holocaust language because it's shocking and violent, and they don't really want to gas Jews. But nonetheless, the chanting is so horrendous, and particularly for Dutch Jews who lost their whole families, that, and also it, people who chant that automatically become more anti-Semitic. Their, their associations with Jews all become negative. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think the Fourth Reich is ever going to break out in Holland, and I, I completely understand that these people making the hissing sound of gas are not going to then go out and massacre some Jews. But I do think that uh, you should punish and stop, that, stop it. 
which doesn't happen in Holland. I mean, very largely, these people are allowed to just do what they like. In England, where there's very strong laws against racist chanting, they would all be banned from the stadium for life. But that doesn't happen in Holland. Simon Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Simon Cooper's book, Ajax, the Dutch, the War, is out now in the United States from Nation Books. If you liked our conversation today, please do let your friends know about it. Share the link to the podcast. You can also tell them that they can get Vox Tablet every single week by going to iTunes, to Stitcher, or any other podcast browser. We also now have a mobile site for Tablet Magazine, and you can listen to Vox Tablet on the go on your iPad or on any handheld device. Our podcast today was produced by Marit Har. Vox Tablet's executive producer is Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. We thank you for joining us. Please join us again next time.